Welcome to Studio Berlin, our current affairs show here on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. A reminder before we get started, my guests and I will be talking to you from our respective home studios, so bear with us if what you hear sounds a little different than what you're used to. In the race to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, developers worldwide are working on apps that track the spread of the coronavirus through Bluetooth technology. That means if you've come into contact with someone who tests positive for COVID-19, you'll be notified. German Health Minister Jens Spahn says one of these contact tracing apps won't be released here until the government is certain that it complies with data protection laws. Spahn told public broadcaster ARD, getting citizens to trust and use a contact tracing app is crucial because the app needs large numbers in order to locate outbreaks. But before we dig into what's going on here, we want to broaden the conversation and talk about where in the world contact tracing apps have already been made available to the public and find out if they've been successful. Joining me now on Zoom is Shashank Bengali. He is a correspondent based in Singapore for the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Shashank. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. You've been reporting from Singapore, a country that initially got a lot of praise for its handling of the coronavirus. Explain those early steps the government took. So what Singapore did early on that was effective was um, really extensive contact tracing. So using surveillance footage, CCTV cameras, security officers, extensive interviews with with patients, they were able to create a really intricate network of cases of of people who were exposed to the virus. And that was why in the early weeks and months of of the epidemic here in Singapore, uh, infections were, you know, in the sort of low hundreds. And that was, given the proximity to China, the travel links, the commercial links, those were pretty low numbers. And, and Singapore was rightfully uh, hailed for its early response. So what has changed now? What What is the situation looking like these days? Well, Singapore is sort of now on the third wave of infections, which has really been an explosion. You know, the first wave was really, you know, localized infections. The second wave was Singaporeans and permanent residents coming back to Singapore from places like the U.S. and Europe, where the virus had begun to really spread. The third wave of infections uh, has come among migrant workers, uh, mostly Bangladeshis, Indians, who work in construction, work in shipyards. They're kind of the unsung labor force of Singapore, and they live in very crowded dormitories, and the infections have really spread tremendously through that community of about 300,000 migrant workers. There were 1,000 infections in Singapore at the start of April. You know, this week uh, we surpassed uh, 14,000. So, and the vast majority of those new infections, uh, you know, 80, 90% of them are among the migrant worker uh, community. And one element of Singapore's response that has been widely talked about is a mobile contact tracing app called Trace Together, which utilizes Bluetooth technology to alert people if they've been in contact or even nearby people who later test positive for COVID-19. Walk us through how this app actually works. Right. So Trace Together actually sort of surfaced uh, midway through uh, Singapore's response. You know, the early contact tracing that was really much more, you know, police officers, security officers doing interviews with people, you know, personally reviewing uh, CCTV footage and things like that. Uh, So it was quite human resource intensive. You know, about a month ago, we began hearing about this Trace Together app that was developed by the government. And so far, one in five Singaporeans last we heard downloaded the app. So about one million people out of a population of five and a half or so million. And 
it's not been tremendously heavily marketed uh, so far, so that's probably a decent number of people, but the government has not wanted to so far make it mandatory. What it basically does is it uses Bluetooth technology, as you said, and it alerts you if you've been uh, within range of six or so feet of somebody else who uses the app and is a known COVID-19 patient. The government says it doesn't collect any location data, that, it's, that it purely uses Bluetooth technology, no GPS or cell phone uh, tower data is collected. And it says it, it keeps the data anonymous. But still, there's not been a huge uptake yet in the app. And so it's hard to say how much it's contributed to the, the contact tracing efforts here. It seems like it's something that's still kind of in the nascent stages. Can you put this app in context of what other Asian countries are doing? I mean, we also hear a lot out of South Korea and China. If there was a spectrum of how invasive these apps are into people's privacy, where, where do you think Singapore's app falls? South Korea, for example, uh, they're collecting a lot of data um, and, and really releasing quite a lot of data about people who've been infected, you know, their, their genders, their ages, and the, that stuff has been available so far on, on government websites. They've been telling people you know, that an infected person rode a certain bus, for example, in, in order to try to keep the outbreak under control there. So there's been a lot more location data gathered in, in South Korea. And in Taiwan, uh, they've kind of created this electronic fence around infected people or people in quarantine. So those people who have been told to stay at home, they've been uh, told to download an app uh, that allows the government to track if they leave where they're supposed to be and also allows the government to monitor if they've switched the app off or if they've done something they shouldn't do. So there's been a lot more location-based data collected in those countries. Trace Together works on a Bluetooth platform, and so it just basically lets you know if you've come into proximity with someone who has the app and, and has had the infection. Uh, so on the spectrum, I would say it's one of the less invasive technologies that we've seen deployed uh, in Asia. And to close, do you think there is something Europeans can learn from Singapore's experience with this contact tracing app? Well, I think it comes down to, you know, the, the toolkit that governments have to respond to pandemics like this. You know, East Asian countries, you know, Singapore in particular, have had experience with pandemics in the past. There was, of course, the SARS epidemic in uh, 2002 and three uh, that really hit Singapore quite hard. And I think that a lot of what Singapore's early successes came out of was a desire not to have a repeat of, of the SARS epidemic. And so there is a degree of trust and belief among people here that the government is going to uh, deploy these technologies for the right purposes. You know, the lessons to be learned, I think, is that when you see the fact that the virus has exploded despite trace together, despite, you know, very heavy human resource based tracking of people, uh, the virus has still sort of run amok in Singapore among migrant workers, a community that has not really been touched by the government's marketing efforts around trace together has not really been touched by the government's efforts to provide masks. They were really kind of a forgotten part of the country. The virus will exploit your weakest links and, and whatever gaps are there in your preparedness plan. And so if the entire range of society is not brought in to use these apps, if there's a you know, lower income segment of the population that doesn't have access to smartphones or doesn't have the awareness of how to use them or is, is somehow neglected in education campaigns, then the whole thing sort of falls apart. Even a 40 or 50% uh, threshold of use uh, from experts I've spoken to does not really get you to a point where you can say this is a, a one-stop shop or, or a, you know, a solution to the problem. It, it may be part of the toolkit, but there's still got to be extensive contact tracing done by humans. 
extensive uh, education on hygiene and mask wearing and all the other tools we're seeing governments use to try to get, get this virus under control. Shashank, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Shashank Bengali is a correspondent in Singapore for the LA Times. Up next, now that we have a sense of what a contact tracing app is capable of doing, we're taking this conversation back to Europe. Stay with us. This is Ira Glass of This American Life. Oh my God. One thing I really like in a radio story. What's back there? Nothing. It looks empty. Oh, there's someone living back there. Is a mystery. I'm not going back there. There's somebody's hair. There's a head in there. There's a shrunken head right there. Mysteries explained each week. This American Life. It's Resident Evil. This American Life. Sundays at 5 p.m. on KCRW Berlin. PRI's The World brings you voices from around the globe. It's your daily source for international news and a gateway to cultures beyond our borders. I'm Marco Werman. Join me right here for the next edition of The World. Tune in to The World Tuesday through Saturday mornings at 8 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. Today we're talking about the tech being developed to combat COVID-19. In the German government's efforts to restart public life, it plans to rely at least partially on an app that uses Bluetooth technology to do something called contact tracing. Joining me now via Zoom is Chris Kuver. She writes about digital rights for the website Netzpolitik.org in Berlin. Hi, Chris. Hi, Sylvia. And joining us from Brussels is Andrea Renda, who is a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Studies. Hi, Andrea. Hello, Sylvia. Hello, Chris. Let's start out by talking about one app that is actually already available in Germany, the Corona Datenspende app, or Corona Data Donation app, and that's from the Robert Koch Institute, Germany's disease prevention authority. Chris, let's start with you. What does this app do? So this app caused a lot of confusion when it was released by the Robert Koch Institute, because up until that point, most of the debate had been about a possible tracing, um, proximity tracing app. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nothing, the Robert Koch Institute came out with this Datenspende app. And the idea behind it is that people who already use fitness trackers to track their pulse or their sleep patterns can voluntarily download this app and donate their data to the Robert Koch Institute, which then can, in the patterns of data, big data analysis, look at certain tendencies. And they're actually looking for a rise in the pulse. So apparently there's studies that show that a rise in pulse can be a sign of, of a fever. The scientist that I spoke to for Netzpolitik.org told me it's supposed to be a, a large thermometer kind of taking the temperature of, of Germany in average. And they're then trying to break down this data to not just Germany as a whole, but then actually look at uh, Landkreise, so smaller sections, to get an idea for their models and their prognosis to where the next Heinsberg or next hotspots for the infection could be coming up. So it's basically meant as an additional tool to collect data that could help those modeling the pandemic at the Robert Koch Institute to help them make a prognosis about upcoming hotspots. 
Okay. And so this is one tool, as you mentioned, on a Germany-wide level, but there is also a larger European effort going on, one that has been highly anticipated. And the mission of this project can pretty much be found in its rather lengthy title, and that is the Pan-European Privacy-Preserving Proximity Tracing. So it was originally endorsed by the German government, but in recent days, it's become a little more unclear where this project is going because there's been some controversies about transparency. So, Andrea, can you boil down what this technology actually aims to do? Yes, uh, this technology aims to enable tracing of contacts by basically using Bluetooth technology or a variant of that, Bluetooth low energy technology, where basically our phones would, um, when we are outside, when we are in the proximity of other people, will use Bluetooth to emit uh, signals and to sort of talk to other phones, if you wish, by, in a way that preserves privacy. Uh, meaning that everything is using IDs and uh, and signals that are not really uh, easy to associate with the people that are using and the owners of those phones. And while this activity goes on, and the moment one of the, people, of the people that are involved in this will test positive for COVID-19, then the memory in the phone will say how many people have been within reach of Bluetooth. And uh, depending on the model that one uses, then uh, this information will sort of be used either by public health authorities to locate these people and uh, ask them to quarantine, or in the version that is being presented right now, an automatic system will send anonymous alerts to these phones so that the owners of the phones would get to know that they have been within Bluetooth reach of someone that later tested positive. And, uh, And this would you know, in the, in the most privacy-preserving version uh, should motivate these people to either self-isolate to go get tested. And um, this is basically how it works in non-technical terms. But of course, there are a number of question marks as to how this information will be stored, whether it's really an anonymous system uh, or, and whether if it's fully anonymous, whether it's really useful. And German officials have made clear whatever app is produced, it will not be mandated. It will be totally voluntary whether you download it or not. But what is the concern about that? Because how many people do we need in this country to download this app for it even to be useful? Yeah, with the estimates of how many people would need to download the app vary depending on the cases and uh, the reproduction rates that we assume. But in principle, most people would say that at least 60%, uh, 6-0, or even 70% of the population would need to download this app for the app to really do what it's supposed to do. And, uh, and that is also where the problems come. Uh, for example, in, the, in a similar app that has become a reference for uh, many scientists also in Europe, uh, that is called Trace Together, that was used in Singapore, the amount of people that ended up uh, downloading the app was so low that in the end, the app didn't you know, turn out being particularly useful. I think the most popular app with respect to the population uh, of the country so far is the app that was used in Iceland, where only 40% of the population ended up downloading the app. There are a number of other countries where the app was, was made mandatory. And of course, these countries are different, but these are also uh, mostly non-democratic countries. And Andrea, we lost you for a moment there, but you said in non-democratic countries. So, Chris, given Germany's sensitive history with Nazis and then East German secret police Stasi spying on citizens, do you think it's actually feasible that 60 to 70 percent of Germans would download this kind of app? 
I think it's a really high uh, number to aim at. I think, I mean, what Andrea also said, uh, we also have to look at what does it actually mean? How many people even own a smartphone that can use this kind of Bluetooth technology? And then you also have to consider the ages, right? We know that especially older people are at risk in this pandemic, but they are the ones who are, you know, less likely to use a smartphone of this technology. And also the number of kids that just don't own smartphones yet. You all have to calculate all that in there. I think Bitcom is estimating that about 81% of Germans above the age of 16 even owns a smartphone. So I think we have to take all that into account to basically realize 60 to 70 percent of people in Germany would mean basically everybody. So there is a fair bit of skepticism here. What are the alternatives? Um, Andrea, what do you think? Yeah, I would echo Chris's skepticism uh, and maybe even reinforcing it. I don't think that technology will save us in this specific case. And I think that focusing the debates too much on the magical powers of the app, I think, is misleading and preposterous even in the public debate at the moment. Technology has a, l a number of flaws, uh, not only the, the requirements as to how many people would, um, would actually download the app, but also what happens once they have downloaded the app. I mean, there are a number of question marks in terms of security, in terms of how to operationalize the app, in terms of how people would react if they receive an alert that make me think that the app in principle only works properly in authoritarian regimes. And I don't think we want to transform ourselves into authoritarian regimes just to be able to use the app, right? And there are alternatives. And not only there are alternatives, there are more important uh, things that should be considered here. An app is only a tiny complement to what is largely a testing and social distancing strategy uh, that needs to be deployed in a way that enables the economy to resume and at the same time uh, enables uh, the contagion not to, to spread again. And this is, will be a very careful exercise in balancing risks. In my opinion, tests of um, all possible types, particular serological tests, uh, will be essential. Don't know yet if people will be able to really have an immunity passport. The, the World Health Organization still says that there's no strong evidence backing the fact that uh, people develop an immunity for a relatively long time after having been infected with COVID-19. Uh, but we need to keep testing people. We need to do this repeatedly. Not that everybody needs to be tested once. We need to make sure that people are tested repeatedly so that we avoid that the ones that test positive continue circulating in the streets, even if they are asymptomatic. Uh, we need the masks. We need the, to reinvent and reorganize public transportations and the way in which we go to work and interact with each other for at least another year to make sure that the contagion doesn't come back. And the app maybe will prove useful, maybe over time, uh, but maybe in the medium term, maybe in six, seven months, and the price to pay for it in terms of risk of privacy is sky high. And yet still, I mean, no matter the skepticism at this stage, this technology is still being pushed forward, still being worked on. Chris, what are developers trying to do to make sure the technology lives up to its name of being privacy preserving? 
I think it's important to, to add, we've just had a seismic shift over the weekend here as to um, what the German government is committing to. I mean, at least we are not talking about tracing location data in Germany anymore. At a certain point a few weeks ago, that was also on the table, right? Jens Spahn already a draft law already that, that was supposed to enable that. And at least that discussion is absolutely off the table. So we are already talking about privacy preserving models that wouldn't allow you know anybody to retrace the steps that we took over the past uh, weeks basically this whole pep pt consortium of international scientists was breaking apart starting about 10 days ago and a part of the people were leaving it publicly criticizing it saying there's a lack of transparency as to what was going on behind closed doors with the german government so there was mounting criticism which was also really bad in terms of, I mean, basically we, we spoke about how important trust in this whole structure is because if the adoption was supposed to work, basically people have to trust in this system. So we had this whole discussion going on and everybody was wondering how much longer would the German government hold on to the centralized model. And now on Saturday, the news broke that uh, Jens Spahn is now also supporting a decentralized model which has the advantage that no central server knows the contact graphs of what other people or what other IDs you were in contact with. And um, basically it means there is no entity in this that you have to trust to not misuse the data because no one has a central collection of the data. The data is remaining on the phones of the people who use the app. Do you think that that's a good step? Is that something you support as somebody who writes about digital rights? Yes, I do think that's a good step. It was also starting to get almost ridiculous in a way because um, we haven't even spoken about the role of Google and Apple in this whole power struggle, international power struggle that we're looking at. It's kind of like an international drama unfolding in which we had the absurd situation that basically Google and Apple were also announcing a couple of days ago that they would support this decentralized standard on their phones, which is essential because we need them to run on the smartphones, right? And they control almost the entire market of smartphones. So it was clear that basically the governments would in the end have to use whatever Google and Apple is also offering up. So we, we had the situation that the German government and the government of France were trying to pressure Apple into lowering their data protection standards so that they could hold on to their centralized models. It was kind of like world upside down because we're not really that used to, you know, these, these tech companies pushing for a more private model than, than what our governments would want to enforce. But that was the case that we had up until this Saturday, basically. Andrea, is there a question of weighing one freedom over the other in the end, though? Because there will be some people who say, you know what, yeah, I'm a little concerned about my data privacy, but I'm more concerned that I can't just, you know, walk outside freely or meet up with a group of friends. So yeah, I'll download an app, you know, for for this time to so the pandemic gets under control, I'm willing to do this. What would you say are the risks of that kind of approach of like, you know what, this is temporary, I'll let it be? In principle, there is a clash of um, rights and public interest. I mean, among fundamental rights, there's not only 
the right to privacy. There's also the right to free circulation, a right to association in public places. And all these have to be balanced, of course. And there is a well-established legal tradition rooted in uh, constitutional uh, rights and in international documents and conventions that uh, explains that in times of emergency, some of the, of the fundamental rights, including right to privacy, might be compressed temporarily in the name of uh, protecting public health. Now, that said, there are conditions that need to be respected in this regard. And uh, the Data Protection Board at uh, the European level has also explained what these conditions would be. And I don't think we are, we're anywhere close to meeting those conditions. Now, first of all, it has to be absolutely necessary to weaken privacy in order to pursue the public interest of protecting healthcare citizens. And we are not facing a situation like this now. So I don't think we are really facing a scenario in which the app will enable us to go outside. There are two possibilities there. The, what we are working on in terms of the app and what we are discussing today is an app that would tell you at some point in time that over the past, let's say, couple of weeks, you have been in the proximity of someone who then tested positive and without telling you who, of course, without telling you where. And it's not a public health authority that tells you that. It's the phone that sends you an alert. If you receive an app by your phone, would you go to a hospital, which is the place that everybody wants to avoid today, to try and get tested? Or would you just stay in isolation because the phone said so? There's a second scenario, which is the more, let's say, instant scenario where... The phone tells you, listen, where you are right now, there is someone who just recently tested positive. This is not what we're working on, but this is what has been discussed also in the public debate, whether an app could tell you that wherever you're sitting, it could be a train or it could be in the public transportation or in an airplane, somewhere near you, there is someone who has tested positive. Now, it's going to be very difficult to defend this latter scenario without just saying, that person that knows that it's tested positive should just go to jail because it's a crime to go around and spread the disease in many countries. So either way, it's going to be very complicated to use this. It's going to be, I think, the place of technology in this big balancing of rights is probably overrated at this stage. And, um, and I don't think that the app itself will be the savior that will uh, convince us to make that effort to sacrifice our privacy. But all this said, um, my last question to you both, are you going to download these apps when they're available in your respective countries? So in Germany and in Belgium? Yes, I will download the app. As a researcher, uh, I need to know how the app works. I need to know how to comment on it. I hope I will not be in a situation of sitting at home on my couch in the evening after having been at work and receiving an alert from my phone, or maybe five or ten alerts from my phone that tell me, well, over the past two weeks, uh, you've been in touch with a number of people that then tested positive. Please don't go to work tomorrow. And because I would not know what to do, especially if this is an automatic message generated by a system that nobody trusts. I mean, for me, as a journalist, I'm obviously interested in how the different apps work and how the political decisions in one or the other direction are being made. But as a citizen of uh, or a person living in Germany, I will download the app when it is available, especially now that I know. I'm not sure what I would have done in the centralized model. I probably would have downloaded the app as well, but I'm definitely more comfortable downloading it now that I know that Germany will release a decentralized app because I know that I don't have to trust anybody to not, you know, misuse my social graph for any other reason. 
because my social graph will not be shared with anybody. Yeah, because I also feel like it doesn't matter how many other people download, it could be small co contribution to, you know, better trace contacts that I might have. And I think it's part of the responsibility of other responsibilities, like wearing masks when you're using public transport or going shopping, or basically each one of us should be conscious of, you know, we're just walking around and we could be unconsciously spreading this and be a danger to other people. So anything that I could do to reduce that danger that I could pose to other people, I would do, yeah. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Chris Cover writes about digital rights for the website netspolitik.org in Berlin. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you. And Andrea Renda is a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Studies in Brussels. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to Studio Berlin. Remember, you can always connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KCRW Berlin. We would love to hear from you. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Have a good week and stay healthy.